Years ago, when I was in a career transition, I had lunch with a colleague of Bonnie's, asking for some advice on my next steps. I didn't have a clear answer to her question about my plans, and she made this point. You tell your story, or someone else will tell it for you. In this episode, how to attract positive attention with the right focus, tactics, and heart. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 568. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know one of the things that's important to all of us is to be able to be noticed for what we want to be noticed for in our work and our careers. And of course, so many of us also have the heart to help the people that we are working with and that we lead also be noticed for their work. But how do we do it effectively? How do we use some of the great human relations principles in order to be noticed well? Today, I'm so glad to welcome someone who has really examined this in a unique and fascinating way that'll help us to really leverage some of the key principles of human relations so that we can get noticed for the work and the skills that we want to be noticed for. I'm so glad to welcome Michael F. Shine to the show. He is the founder and president of Microfame Media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their industries. His writing has appeared in Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Psychology Today, and Huffington Post. And he's a speaker for international audiences spanning from the U.S. to China. He's also the creator of the popular Hype Book Club, which provides regular recommendations of books about hype artists and hype strategies. He is the author of the Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandist, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. Michael, if there's an award for a eye-catching subtitle for a book, you have won it, sir. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. We were inspired by uh, Borat with his movie titles. That's that's really, <laughs> you know, where we went with that. It definitely gets attention. You know, it's interesting, too, this word hype. I mean, it's so much a part of your work. It's a part of this book, of course. And I think a lot of the times many of us bristle at the term hype. In fact, I did when I first came across your book. I was like, ooh, hype handbook? I don't know. And and yet I think sometimes we don't think about it in the way of really looking at how it can be helpful. But maybe we should start there of like, what actually is hype? What do you think about when you think about hype? So first of all, I I think it's important to say that I am absolutely co-opting this word and repurposing it. I mean, the word is in most communities considered a negative thing. What most people think of when they hear hype is is this concept of generating a lot of attention that isn't well-deserved around stuff that isn't so good, right? That said, the reason I chose that word is because there are certain communities and they're usually outsider communities that don't have the luxury to draw such a firm line between what they're selling and how they're getting it out in the world. And actually what I was inspired by, and this will probably be unusual as a reference point to, to much of your audience, but was the hip hop world, you know? So in hip hop and rap music, there were always hype men. There, there are these people who are part of the rap groups that 
are responsible for getting the crowd worked up, but also getting attention for the act by any means necessary. And in the hip hop world, people don't look at that as, oh, you know, I wish we didn't have to do that, but it's a necessary evil. They look at that as part of the fun. They look at that as part of the energy and and the color that makes their art form so vibrant. So I thought that was a really interesting sort of model and paradigm for what we all need to be doing now if we want to get good ideas, a lot of attention. So I've chosen to define hype as any set of activities that gets large numbers of people emotional so that they'll take an action that you want them to take. And they can be negative actions, positive actions, or neutral actions, but it's kind of devoid of, of moral sort of color. It's, it just is. These tactics just work, these strategies. Yeah, it is fascinating to me, too, reading through the book and just thinking about how some of these things have showed up in my own career and where I've missed the mark, but also where are the things that have worked. And it's interesting how some of these things really do line up. And uh, one of the things you zero in on is that we've sort of evolved through history to seek guidance from people who appear miraculous to us. And, you know, one of the interesting, I mean, just going back in history is the story of the Magi, which I think a lot of people, you know, know something of the word Magi, but I was wondering if you could frame a bit of like how they have showed up in history and like where that relates as far as being miraculous. Yeah, I'm really glad that you that you picked out this story because it was one of my favorites and it was one that I, I don't think most people know. You know, we, we hear that word the magi in in often the Christmas story, right? Like yeah, gift yeah. I, I never knew who those magi were. They they had the, the the three wise men, they were called magi, but I didn't really know what that what that meant. It was just that was their their title. And then we hear the word magician a lot, which comes from magi, but we don't often make the connection. But they were actually an ethnic group. They were a tribe. So in the uh, area that is now Iran, many thousands of years ago, the ruling ethnic group was the the Medes. And the Persians who would come to rule the area later were sort of a, a subjugated group. And the Magi were a group of people who had sort of found their niche in society by becoming fortune tellers. So they would really create this austere image for themselves. They would wear robes and amulets and they would burn incense and they would do incantations. And as a result, the the kings and the rulers would always consult them before they went into battle to do a prediction. So one time they would cast their charms and and do their incantations and they predicted that the Medes would would win and they didn't. You know, the Persians beat them. And back then, you know, um, there was no mercy shown to enemies. So the Persians came through and killed and slaughtered, you know, all of their enemies, but they did not do so for, for the Magi. In fact, the Magi gained a position at the Persian court and became even more powerful, even though they made a wrong prediction. So what that shows, and, and we see echoes down through history with this, is that human beings, despite how rational we think we are, we look for external symbols very subconsciously that we can control this chaotic universe, right? So what's interesting about this is if you can create an external perception that you can give people some way of understanding the chaotic universe that they live in, that's extremely useful in terms of getting them to follow you. And, and the miraculous part is people are often attracted, One other than the eye candy and the ear candy and all of that, 
Another way people decide this is they look at what they consider miraculous figures, you know, people who are perceived to be outstanding in their area. They do bigger than life, larger than life feats. And there are ways to generate that perception in your own life, even if you don't think of yourself as miraculous. And even if you um, and in a way that's very, very honest and forthright, which we can talk about. Yeah, that's where I think this is really useful to us of thinking about like in the work that many of us do in our organizations and our own careers of how do we get noticed. And the paragraph that I highlighted more than any other in the book is this one. I'm going to read it. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's it's it really underscores the point of the of why this is key. Uh, you write, there's a fine line between learning to tell your story in the most persuasive way possible and be a, being a braggadocious liar. The latter will ultimately work against you, because despite appearances to the contrary, most people are surprisingly good at spotting truly blatant stuff. To stay on the right side of this line, think of the various elements of your narrative as faders on a music studio mixing board. When recording engineers mix a track, they could theoretically place every instrument, bass, guitar, drums, vocals, keyboards, at the same level. But this would just make the result an ugly blob of noise, no matter how good the underlying song actually is. Instead, they raise and lower the different instruments in the mix. None of the instruments disappear entirely, but some of them come to the fore while others recede into the background. That is a brilliant analogy for thinking about like, it's about like mixing the story and thinking about how you present it so much more in addition to just what the story is, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, and thank you for that compliment. All of us have a story. And there's not one person that I know, even people who are really at a bad place in their lives, or at least perceive themselves to be, who don't have some elements of their story that other people would admire, even buried in the, in, in the mess of their lives, you know? And at the same time, I don't know any people who don't have certain things that in the community they're in are just kind of normal, but in another community would be considered really amazing. So a way to think about this is, let's say you are in the world of literary agents and you happen to be kind of good with IT stuff, with gadgets. If you were in a world of engineers, that's not a big deal. But in a world of literary agents, people who sell dead trees for a living, right? That's a big deal. So you can kind of talk about your technical savvy or even better, demonstrate it somehow. You know, make yourself well known for being the technically savvy literary agent person that is going to bring people into the future with your amazing technical savvy. When a client comes to you, they're going to get the benefit of the new world, you know, of, of the new world of technological savvy where everyone else is stuck in the past. You don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg level programmer to do that. But in that world, which is a more a Luddite sort of world, to, to be honest, it is like moving the fader up on something that could just be considered a normal trait in other environments. When you were telling that story, I was thinking back to Something that happened early in my career, Michael, my um, uh, my wife, Bonnie, we met, oh gosh, 15 or 16 years ago now. And when we were dating, she was an executive at a firm and I was in career transition. 
And one day we were talking about it and she said, you know, we should sit down and have lunch with one of my colleagues who was also a senior executive in this firm. And she said, she is great at career stuff and personal branding. And so we ended up sitting down and having lunch with her. And I I don't remember the details of the conversation all these years later, but I, I remember telling her kind of my story of like, okay, where have I come in my career and what's next and kind of trying to, how am I trying to position myself? And I remember her saying to me and and coming out of that lunch thinking, that's not the story you want to tell. <laughs> uh, and and what she she didn't use this analogy, of course, but she said, you know, like basically you're you're turning all the faders up on everything. Like you're telling me the good stuff, you're telling me the bad stuff. You're just like it's noisy, and you haven't really thought about how you're going to position your story for the right audience. It's essentially going back to that analogy. It's being the sound engineer that has to decide, okay, what's the right thing to emphasize for this particular audience or for this particular industry that you're looking to get into. And I walked away from that lunch, Michael, thinking really for the first time in my life and in my career, oh, I need to do the work to do the mixing of the story. I need to decide what's the story I'm going to tell and what parts I'm going to emphasize and which parts I'm not going to emphasize. Because if I didn't, either no one was going to pay attention or if people did pay attention, they were going to craft a story that wasn't the story I wanted them to tell. Right. You lose the control. Of yeah. That yeah. Yeah. I, I, I taught years ago a class at Bonnie's University for undergraduate students, and it was on personal branding and personal communication. And I used to write, uh, as an example in the class, I would write up two bios, and I'd read it to them. And they were both bios of me. One of them was all the good stuff. And then I wrote a bio about all the horrible stuff <laughs> in my life and my career. That's a great exercise. I, I think I might steal that for my clients. I mean, that's a really good exercise. Yeah, please yeah. feel free. Um, and I would read the good bio and I would say to the class, like, who do you think this is? And a lot of them would figure out, oh, oh it's you, like, because they knew a little bit about my background. And then I would read the bad bio and I would say, like, who would you hire? And everyone was like, oh my gosh, I'd never hired that second person. And then I would say, well, who do you think the second bio is about? And once in a while, someone in the class would be like, is that also you? And it was like, <laughs> they could, like, and that would blow people's minds that all these bad things, all these negative things could be the same person. And I, it just emphasizes the point you made of like the importance of, again, I mean, I think both of us are emphasizing this, like, we're not lying. We're not saying like, don't like try not, you know, or try to like change what has factually happened. But it's how you present, just like a any good marketer would do, any good editor would do. It's positioning yourself in a way that really tells the story that you want to tell. And you you give some examples in the book of people. I mean, some interesting names. I think people would know in history who have have really played into this a bit. One of them is Thomas Edison. Also an interesting case of this, isn't he? Well, this is another layer. So before him, most big scientific names were were gentlemen. They were people who had the leisure to um, work on scientific discovery. So Charles Darwin, for example, he used to work like four hours a day. He would take walks. He would think. This idea of the Elon Musk sleeping under your desk, that was not a, a myth that people bought into at the time. Edison, though, was a cantankerous guy. So first of all, he was partially deaf. He had been hit in the ear when he was a kid. 
And so he couldn't hear a lot of what people said, which made conversation difficult for him. He also just didn't really like socializing very much and came across as kind of cantankerous. So what he did was, because he knew the power of promotion and hype, he created a myth of the hardworking, working around the clock scientist. So he installed a punch card center in his office, not for his employees, for him. And he would track his hours and made sure that the press reported on it. He circulated a story where uh, someone came into his lab at uh, like midnight and midnight was very, very late at the time because there was no electric light yet. (laughs) There hadn't been no Edison. But um, so he was at his lab at midnight with the candles on and someone came in and said, you know, Mr. Edison, you should really go home. And he uh, said, oh, it is true. It is my wedding night, isn't it? (laughs) You know, another story, um, he would have the press show up and someone would greet them at the door and they said, Mr. Edison, he would love to see, but he's in the middle. He's been working for 14 hours straight. You know, he, he, he can't talk to you right now. So as a result, he took this weakness, which was not liking people, not liking to socialize, not being able to small talk. And he turned it into the defining trait of the inventor, which modern inventors and the modern business press is still buying into all because he had this insecurity that he needed to turn into hype. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And you outline some key steps that all of us can take if we want to think about how we might utilize some of these principles to get noticed. And one of the things you invite us to do is to make a list of our strengths, but also to make a list of our weaknesses. And then you say, Practice not mentioning your weaknesses for a week. <laughs> What's the value in, in in that as far as like going down that road? Well, yeah, that goes back to the to the earlier part about the faders. So I think it's really interesting how often many of us qualify our story. So you, you'll, you'll often hear people say things like someone will compliment someone in a business context. You know, you know, the thing that you created was really innovative, was really cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, you know, it was it was pretty easy to do since I had, you know, three weeks of sabbatical to think about it. Right. And you just sort of discounted the fact that you're basically saying, well, I couldn't have done it if I was really busy like I normally am. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Versus not bringing that up and letting them build in their imagination how you did such an amazing feat. So I think one of the things is if you just set a week to just not brag, but to just not mention your weaknesses, you'll find out how often you're tempted to qualify what you do. And if you look at the great hype artists, I mean, if you look at people right now who are very, very good at building followings, Tony Robbins, uh, Simon Sinek, these kinds of people, they, they they speak with complete confidence and complete clarity. They don't qualify anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, I think what I'm hearing you say here is like getting to a place where you identify strengths and weaknesses, writing that down, and then not highlighting your weaknesses, not mentioning them for a week. What you're learning to do is you're learning to, first of all, recognize that there are faders. There's different channels, Right. And you're starting to get practice at moving them. And I think that that's the thing that 
a lot of people don't think about in their careers, or if they do, it's really later in their careers, past the point where it would have made a bigger difference. And just getting that practice of starting to to turn down some of those faders gives you then the opportunity to start to think about how you're crafting your story and ultimately being able to position yourself in a way that gets noticed the way you want to get noticed by the people you want to get noticed by, uh, by the organizations you want to get noticed by, by the senior executives you want to get noticed by, the clients. I mean, insert person here. But it, it, it starts to actually give you that tool and build that muscle so you can use it. Yeah, that's very well said. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this exercise is an exercise. It's to be done for a week. What I'm not telling you to do, and, and please don't confuse this, is spend the rest of your life never mentioning a negative thing about yourself or never qualifying anything. Yeah, That's where yeah. I don't want people to swing the pendulum. There, there are times and places to sprinkle in a little bit of self-deprecation, right? I mean, there, there, there are, are examples that you can probably think of where an otherwise extremely competent, confident person stumbles over their words or, you know, or, or something like that, or admits a failing and it's extremely charming, right? What I'm inviting you to do is exactly what you said, is to practice that muscle, to make it conscious so that you're not just sort of acting out of impulse and, you know, feeling a little bit embarrassed about being a bragger or drawing attention to yourself. It's a function of like faders, you know, sometimes they, they, they move the base really high in the mix for a couple seconds and, but they do it on purpose. Yeah. It, there's an intentionality here. That's really key. And then the second step you say is, okay, after the week, come back to the list and reframe how some of your weaknesses might actually be strengths. So you're doing the Edison thing, right? Of your thinking about, okay, what's what's the thing that maybe makes me a little odd or weird in this career, in this organization, in how I approach things? And actually, how could I actually make that work to my advantage? Right. I mean, th this can be a really hard thing to do because we are often embarrassed of our quote unquote weaknesses. We want to minimize them, even though, well, that sounds like a paradox. I mean, we I'm saying that we often qualify things and draw attention to our weaknesses. But I guess what I mean by that is there are things about ourselves that we really look down on ourselves about. We beat ourselves up about and we don't even want to think about them. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, I uh, I grew up in a family and this may be getting a little personal, but but my father was a really like hardcore guy, you know, like really just demanding on everyone. And when you're raised by parents, even though you may come to resent some of that stuff later, you see that as a positive, like as a way of being in the world, right? So I have a very different personality. I'm a bit of a people pleaser, right? It matters a lot to me for people to like me, right? Even to the extent that sometimes I won't speak up. And I used to be very, very embarrassed about that. Now you would say to yourself, why would a guy be embarrassed about that? That means he's a nice person. Well, not really. I thought that it was a weakness. I thought that being a people pleaser meant that you weren't just a command and control going after everything with gusto kind of guy. You missed opportunities because you cared too much about what people thought. But now, you know, I've very much flipped that into a strength. So um, for example, there's an entire chapter in my book called Create a Secret Society, which is about how hype artists make things seem like all of their success is very grassroots, but they build very strong 
connections behind the scenes. And I've, I've driven my whole career that way. And I talk, you know, we have programs in my company where we train organizations to kind of weave hype into their DNA. And then every, you know, three to six months, we do these secret society building exercises where we bring all kinds of influential people in, we help create those connections. And, and I, I sell that now. I sell that as a strength of me and of our organization. And that comes directly out of the people-pleasing impulse that I used to be so embarrassed about. So this is a tough exercise psychologically. I'm not just saying, you know, hey, you know, um, little weaknesses, like sometimes I don't tuck my shirt in or, you know, I don't make my bed every morning. I'm saying dig deep. The things that you feel shame about, the things that actually you lie to yourself and tell yourself you don't have those weaknesses. That's where the magic is. That's where you can really flip those into a strength. And we can give more. I mean, Andy Warhol did this very well. I mean, you see it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny as you were saying that I was thinking back to my own career when I was early on in my career at Dale Carnegie, a lot of the people around me in the organization were very extroverted, very loud. That was just the nature of the personalities that would show up working for a company like Carnegie. And I wasn't. Uh, yep. I was very introverted and quiet, still am. And I saw that at the time as a weakness. I know now that it's not, but I saw that as a weakness. And right. at some point, I made a really conscious decision to like, oh, no, I should actually dial up that fader and become the person who does a lot of writing and content creation and connects with people that way. And no one saw it coming. I mean, me neither. <laughs> I mean, it was so powerful of like how differently I did work than so many of my colleagues. And it was unbelievably successful over time of really playing into what I thought is a weakness. And now I recognize is actually real strength of being able to do that well. And, and it was a very conscious choice to reframe what I was a bit embarrassed about just, just because of the company I kept, not because anyone else said it, but just, I was like, okay, there's a lot of people around me who are really good at this that I'm not. And it, it made all the difference in my career. So Dave, first of all, you're a very good hype artist. There's been a lot of things you've said, I think that, and I mean that in, in a positive, very, very positive way, right? So I think you have a natural sense of a lot of this stuff. And what I would say is just to make a slight correction to what you said, you said, I, I used to think it was a weakness and now I know it wasn't. It could have been a weakness. In certain contexts, it was a weakness. If you had stayed in the Dale Carnegie organization and just tried to like do the Dale Carnegie thing, I mean, you're, you're literally in a company that says that is about how to make friends and influence people, right? <laughs> right, right. So, so, I mean, if you had just said, you know, I'm going to minimize that introversion, then you just would have come across as a little bit awkward and you would have been introverted anyway, or else you could have gone the other direction, just sort of slunk into the corner and not said a lot and then beat yourself up every night and you wouldn't have done as well as everyone else. What you did is you said, okay, how do I, instead of just saying, introversion is a strength. So take me as I am. That's what a lot of people do. That's overcompensating. You said, how can I take those introversion qualities and find the buried strength in them? How do I flip the script as Eminem would say, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you flip the script. You said, if I can't make connections the way everyone else is doing, not only will I just deal with it, I'm going to be the only person in the organization who takes an in, that uses writing, that uses content, that uses introversion as my superpower. And now that set you apart. So it's about realizing that it probably is a weakness in your current usage and in your current context. 
and then saying, but it sets me apart. How do I flip that into my strength? Uh, it's a great distinction. I never thought about it that way. And it, and it kind of leads to like the, I don't know if it's the final step, but, but certainly a place to get to is developing your own story, right? I mean, ultimately, once you've figured out where those, what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are, how you're framing some of the weaknesses, where they may be strengths, part of it then is, is you're, you're creating the story. You're creating the final edit, if you will, for coming back to that music analogy of, of what it looks like. And um, what do you find helps people at that stage to, to get beyond just to thinking about the strengths and weaknesses and the faders to actually getting to the point where it's like, okay, I've got a story to tell now that really represents the message that I want to get out in the world. This is the work of, of becoming good at hype. And there are ways to do this. So for one, I talk a lot about theatricality. There's an entire chapter in the book dedicated to theatricality. And when people think of theatricality, what they usually think of is lights and music and, you know, pyrotechnics. And that's part of it. And a lot of people like the Tony Robbins of the world and the Amways of the world, they use that. However, if you look at where theater came from, traditional theaters from ancient Greece, there was not even a set. It was three people playing different characters. They had masks, but other than that, they just used their voices, right? And what made theater, it was like Aristotle talked about this, was the structure of the story, the three-act structure. A lot of people don't study the wealth of storytelling information out there that could really help them. You'll learn sometimes as much from seeing how great theater people or movie makers or novel writers get your emotions to go up and down in the way they tell a story and then seeing how you can cross-pollinate that with your own story than you can from some book that says storytelling strategies in business, you know, not to denigrate my own business book writing, uh, you know, ecosystem that, that, you know, that is so important to my living. But I think you need to study the best storytellers in the world. The other thing is packaging. You know, it's once you figure out what that sort of hook is, that, that thing you're known for, whether it's being the, the grinding worker that Edison is, whether it's being the soft-spoken man of few words like Warhol is, whether it's being this persona you created for yourself with the introversion, you weave that through everything you do. You make yourself known for that. You know, for example, I used to be the co-host of an excellent podcast called Access to Anyone, and it still exists. And my co-host was is named Michael Roderick. He's a friend of mine, and it's done even better under him than it was under us. It's very popular in that space. And I loved it. And I, I eventually resigned, which was really hard for me to do. And I resigned because I was getting a lot of attention for this hype stuff. You know, I started writing articles on it before the book. I weaved it into my business. And access to anyone is, 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 is sort of a brighter side of the fence approach. It's about how do you build relationships with people? How do you, you know, create bonds and network in this very positive way? And I realized that as much as I love the show, that was very much Michael Roderick's brand. But my, by me putting myself up as the positive thinking go-getter guy, that completely conflicted with my image as the benevolent mischief maker that hype is all about. Mm -hmm. So as much as I love that show and as much as that's part of my personality, I had to ruthlessly eliminate that from my, from my persona. 
So consistency in your packaging is also hugely important. But that, that's that's the business of hype. It's figuring out what that story is, figuring out what that point of view is, and getting it out there in the way that people will gravitate to it. Well, I hope that folks listening to this uh, will really start doing some thinking on, like, how could I bring this into the story that I'm telling in the world? I mean, these are so many principles that are going to be useful on that. And I'm so glad you mentioned the Secret Society a bit ago. I came so close to us having this conversation actually being about that part of the book, because I think that's uh-huh. such a critical lesson for leaders as well. So I hope that folks will go check out the book to really dive in more. I mean, we're just hitting on one of the 12 principles. And not only is there a ton that's actionable in the book, but it's also just really fun to read and like really think about all of the different ways that people have utilized hype for good, for evil, and everything in between, and how we can do it in a way that really helps ourselves and our organization. So thanks, Michael, at done for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I I think this was just a fantastic conversation. Michael F. Shine is the author of The Hype Handbook. Uh, Go check it out. Details coming in this week's Weekly Leadership Guide. Thanks a ton, Michael. Thank you. If this conversation has you intrigued, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 148, The Four Critical Stories Leaders Need for Influence. Our resident storytelling expert, David Hutchins, was on that episode telling us how to use the framework of storytelling in order to influence more effectively. Guess what? One of those four stories is the who we are story and the who I am story. Such a critical thing to be able to tell your own story as a leader the who we are as an organization, a lot of direction from David in that conversation, episode 148 for more details there. I'd also recommend episode 480, Get Noticed Without Selling Out. Harvard professor Laura Wong was my guest on that episode. We talked about this dichotomy that many of us feel in our careers that if we're going to get noticed, if we're going to advance ourselves and build a brand, somehow we need to sell out. Not so, she says. There's a lot of different ways that we can actually both advance our own careers, our own messages, our brands, and at the same same time, be real genuine and authentic about it, as you heard in our conversation with Michael today. Episode 480 for some of the tactics that will complement this conversation really well. And then finally, I recommend episode 549, How to Actually Get Traction from Leadership Books with Nicole Verheem, one of our Academy members. Nicole and I in that conversation talked about his reading over the years, how he has utilized many of the models that he's read in books and heard from speakers and experts, and then adapted them a bit to really make them his within their organization so that they resonate with his team and with the culture of their organization. It's a great invitation to think about how you are being influenced by the experts and what you're reading and what you're hearing on podcasts and what you're watching on TED Talks, and then to be able to take the next step and to see how do you adapt it well for your organization in a way that makes sense and lands with people so that you help everyone move forward. Episode 549 for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to a 
ton of resources that are available to you for free, and one of those resources is my interview and book notes. Each time I conduct an interview, if I'm able to share the notes with you, uh, which is almost all of the interviews, I highlight the things that I'm seeing in books of the experts who come on the show, and then I'm detailing those out in a couple of pages, and I'm including also my interview notes. Uh, Michael's are available, and the link to this episode as well as almost all of the episodes over the past couple of years. You can go into the free membership at coachingforleaders.com, set it up, and then just look for the link for interview and book notes, and you'll be able to search alphabetically by all of the experts and books we've had on the show over the last several years. A lot more inside the free membership as well. You can set it up right now by going over to coachingforleaders.com, and you'll have access in just a few moments to everything there. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Sarah Stein Greenberg to the show. She is going to be helping us to get perspective on the way to make struggles more productive. Join me for that conversation with Sarah next week. Have a great week and see you on Monday.